You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Guide Post. Um, this is Will Poston here. Um, just to do a quick intro um, ahead of the full podcast uh, that I recorded several weeks ago um, with Mike Woods um, from Backcountry's Hun- Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, where we talk all things um, Rhode Island shoreline access issues. So since we recorded that podcast several weeks ago, um, we've seen a lot of new developments. So this intro is, you know, hopefully will provide some context for the upcoming discussion. Um, for one, the Rhode Island uh, state legislature held several hearings um, about various shoreline access bills. Um, and then just last week, um, a Senate committee advanced a shoreline access bill that was kind of deemed a compromise um, towards the full Senate for, for a floor vote. Um, now, backcountry hunters and anglers is supporting um, this compromise bill at this time, um, along with many other organizations. ASGA will be signing on um, to their letter, but uh, but BHA also has an action alert where um, you know everyday anglers, you know, concerned Rhode Island um, stakeholders, etc., can um, share their voice and their support. Uh, for clarifying shoreline access in Rhode Island. Um, so with that, I hope you just enjoy this discussion and uh, learn more about you know the complex um, issues that are shoreline access in uh, Rhode Island. One of our uh, good friends up in the Northeast, uh, Mr. Mike Woods from the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers um, New England chapter. Um, and we are going to be diving in um, to some pretty relevant, very relevant uh, shoreline access issues that are going on um, throughout the Rhode Island le- legislature right now. Um, so with that, Mike, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Will. Glad to be back with you on the guidepost. Looking forward to talking about an important issue for anglers here in my neck of the woods in Rhode Island. Awesome. Yeah, I mean... I think last time you and I uh, saw each other was back at Cheeky um, last summer uh, or last spring, rather. So uh, hope you'll be making it up there again. I'm excited to um, make my spring migration uh, up to the Northeast and get some uh, good good schooly striper fishing in. I am. I'm going to be there. And actually, I've got a friend of mine, uh, one of BHA's staffers who lives out on the West Coast. He is coming over uh, in hopes of catching his first striped bass. So I'm looking forward to showing uh, to showing a steelhead fisherman what we love here in the Northeast and uh, and our great fishery. Um, obviously, stripers right now, there's a lot of attention and work that still needs to be done there. But uh, the foundation of that is having an engaged population that loves the fish, loves the fishery, and is willing to step up and fight for them when the fight needs to be taken to uh, the managers. For sure. Well, I don't think um, stripe striper fishing uh, 
we'll take as many casts as a, a steelhead uh, swinging for steelhead. So uh, I wish him the best of luck, and I know you'll put him on some fish. Um, but anyways, we are here to talk um, shoreline access. You know, physical access is an essential part of um, you know fishing and all of our businesses that rely on abundant fisheries. But you need to have that physical access too. Um, so let's dive into your issue. I know you kind of have three three main points you're hoping to um, discuss here, and I know this is a complex, tricky issue. Um, so how how do you want to start this, Mike? Uh, we'll dive right into it, and uh, and I just want to expand on your point there, and in, in talking about the work that that I do and that backcountry hunters and anglers as an organization does. Um, when I prioritize issues, oftentimes I think about what it takes for us to be able to go fishing or to be able to go hunting. Um, the two things are uh, abundant populations of, of fish and wildlife on the landscape that have a care, you know, that where we can enjoy them and utilize them uh, from a carrying capacity as opposed to in a way that would put a real burden on the species. And the other part of that is having access to places where we can pursue them, you know, wild places, our coastlines, our, our forests, our woodlands. Yeah. Um, not, so not, not everyone has 10,000 acres or, you know, a 30 foot uh, center console at their disposal. <laughs> nope. Some, some of us are, are, uh, are restricted to the shore and a pair of waders with, uh, with a middle priced fly rod like me. <laughs> hey, hey, boatfish don't count for anyone's listening. <laughs> Um, so the, uh, this issue uh, of shoreline access is one that falls squarely within sort of the access side of that, of that priority bucket that, that I, I work on. Um, and here in my state of Rhode Island for the last three or four years, uh, we've been working at the legislature to cement what is, um, a really longstanding and frankly constitutional right that Rhode Islanders have always enjoyed. Uh, but that our courts and our common law hasn't necessarily given us the guidance to understand precisely uh, where that right can be enjoyed. And so um, so getting a clear line on the beach where where anglers and, uh, you know, and there's other things you can do swimming from the shore, you know, navigation or, or passing up and down the shore. Uh, fishing, obviously, is part of our constitutional uh, package of rights here in Rhode Island and collecting seaweed also. Um, these things are all spelled out in Rhode Island's constitution, but it doesn't say where you can do that. And what that results in uh, is conflicts with, you know, with property owners that live adjacent to the shore that feel that, you know, they might own more than the people on the beach do. And, and that ends up in court from time to time. So um, so what we've been working on here and, and you know, alongside a sort of growing coalition of uh, of conservation minded folks, anglers. Uh, some of our mutual friends, as well as other conservation groups, you know, surfers, swimmers, people that just care about water access and spending time on the beach have been doing is, is trying to get this right uh, through, through statute, through legislation um, outlined in precise terms. Awesome. So I know I've been seeing some news articles, um, you know, about what's going on immediately uh, or in the short term, rather. Um, but, you know, going back to last spring, you know, I know you, you had mentioned the public trust, public trust doctrine to me. Um, I know it's, you know, I, I get BHA's new newsletters as well. And I know that's, um, you know, a big issue for them. So how, how is that, you know, kind of historic, 
um, idea folding into all this? So, yeah, public trust doctrine is an important, I would even say a foundational legal concept to issues like this one, but it's really actually quite a bit more expansive. It covers things like access to clean air and clean water that we can live in, um, the way that we manage wildlife. And, uh, and this is an old principle. It actually predates our country. Uh, goes all the way back to the Roman Empire uh, and, and Emperor Justinian at 500 AD. And uh, at that time, you know, obviously I wasn't around a lot. And, uh, and we're kind of going off of, uh, you know, a couple translations between different languages. But um, at that point, there was some concern about the way that, that you know, that the resources were being developed, you know, flowing water, air, um, the sea, fisheries, and, and access to them. And so uh, at the time, Justinian, who was a lawyer, uh, set out to figure out how these resources could be managed uh, in a way that was beneficial to society as opposed to, you know, um, monopolized by one person, you know, by the rich, by the king or the emperor or whatever, to the detriment of the public. And, and he came up with, or I should say a, a study commission that he put, put together, came up with this concept of the public trust. And, and what that said was that, uh, that there were these communal natural resources, things like air, flowing water, um, the shores of the sea, uh, and that these things were held communally and the sovereign, or, you know, at that time for that society, it would have been the emperor. But as, as this concept has flowed through Britain and eventually to North America, um, our states act as the sovereign, the trustee of those resources and manage them uh, on behalf of the people of the state. And, you know, and this has been back, back when Rhode Island was developing that constitution that, you know, clarified the rights of seaweed gatherers and, and fisheries. Right. That's kind of where it's rooted in. Yeah. So Rhode Island has a, a really unique history, even compared to some of the other colonies that were part of the, you know, sort of the original settlement that came across the ocean from from Europe into North America. Um, and the rights here in Rhode Island were first outlined in uh, a document called our Royal Charter. This is what uh, Roger Williams, who was a settler, um, you know, kicked out of Massachusetts for his religious beliefs. And eventually he went back to uh, to King Charles in Britain. And negotiated this charter, which was the you know the the document that acknowledged Rhode Island was a colony, and so that's the first place that we as Rhode Islanders uh, were granted the right to use the fishery and to access the shore. Um, when we eventually uh, you know there was the independence of the country, and each state started to design its own constitution as well as our you know our United States Constitution. This right in Rhode Island persisted through every version of the Constitution that we've had. So we actually have um, a longstanding line that goes all the way back to the formation of, of Rhode Island as a colony and eventually a state where this constitutional right to enjoy the fishery and, and the way that they term it in the Constitution is the privileges of the shore. Um, these are things like leaving the shore to swim and collect seaweed and fish um, this has always been here. It's not something that was invented, you know, with the country. It's not something that was put in later in, in some subsequent version, uh, that came out of a constitutional convention. Um, it's, uh, it's something that we trace back and, and is fundamental to being a Rhode Islander, which makes it really important to us. Um, and, and important to me and, and folks like me specifically, because I want to be able to go out on the beach and catch fish. It's what I do for fun. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned privilege. To enjoy, you know, the the shore and all that the shore affords, um, that that kind of makes me think that, you know, on the on the flip side of that 
privilege, you know, is just how important it is to be stewards, right? Um, you know, to be able to access that privilege. Um, you know, that that that's on both the um being stewards of the resource and the ecosystem, but then not not damaging that that shoreline that you're benefiting from. Um so just something that popped into my head too. Um but any, anyways, Mike. So let's let's dive into the Rhode Island issue. Um, and you know, I know you'd mentioned that this is something that's been going on for a couple years longer longer than that, and now it's kind of coming to might come to a to a head here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So it's really an issue that um, goes back about forty years in. Um, through Rhode Island's history, we have um, we have developed the boundary on our shore through uh, a legal concept called the common law. And uh, there's sort of two different ways that law can be created. We can either have statutory law, which is uh, like legislation. This is if you go in and look at your state's general laws, uh, things that the legislature has enacted to become the law of the state. Um, but then there are other legal concepts that, that are equally as important uh, that are part of the common law, which is um, the judiciary's interpretation of legislation that exists. They'll interpret the Constitution and they'll interpret legislation based on the intent uh, when it was enacted. And so through Rhode Island's history, our common law, and a lot of times public trust is something that lives, you know, that resides in the common law. Yeah. There certainly are examples where it can be statutory and, and certain terms and boundaries of it uh, can be defined precisely using legislation, but generally it's something that relies on the court's interpretation of a state's history and its customs. Um, so our boundary, you know, the boundary in Rhode Island has been subject to this common law interpretation and hasn't really been static over the years. Um, but most recently, the, the courts weighed in on our shoreline boundary in 1982 in a case called State versus Ibison. And what happened there was, um, you know, at the time in the 60s and 70s, the southern coast of Rhode Island was developing rapidly. Um, people were, you know, our roads were getting better. Our infrastructure was better. Our automobiles were better. And so um, businessmen and, and women who were well-to-do could finally afford to live down on the beach in a place that was really nice and enjoyable and commute into the cities where they could make more money, you know, with their jobs. That, that option really wasn't available. Uh, prior to that time. And as a result, much of Southern Rhode Island, you know, it was kind of farmland or fishing towns or, you know, uh, a much more rural feel and, and much, much less hustle and bustle and, and sort of contesting of property rights, things of that nature. Everyone kind of lived together and got along. But as this development came along, um, you know, the people that lived on the beach didn't always love uh, folks walking up and down or fishing in front of their house. And, and at the time, you know, there's a pretty active community in, in the beach buggy space as well. And uh, so in the late 1970s, there was a uh, one particular landowner in Westerly, which is all the way to the western side of Rhode Island's southern coast, um, who who didn't like these people. And he, he, he worked out different ways to do it. Um, but he eventually orchestrated uh, in coordination with a, a coastal cleanup that this local fishing group was doing. Um, he staked out a boundary that he felt was the end of his property on the beach, and it was pretty close to the water. And uh, and he waited there with a policeman for the coastal cleanup folks to come by. And as soon as they did, he said, you know, Mr. Policeman, I, I've got some folks trespassing on my property down by the beach. I need you to go down and arrest them. I'd like to enforce my right to exclude 
uh, people from my private property. And, and of course, uh, the policeman did. Um, he went down and arrested them. They'd gone through all the formalities in advance. Uh, and this case, this trespassing case on the beach, elevated its way all the way up to Rhode Island Supreme Court, um, where the uh, where the court uh, determined, you know, they were they were forced to weigh in. Um, and they did in, in a somewhat flawed fashion that the boundary between property and public trust land where people could practice their rights. But it's worth noting that, you know, these people weren't fishing. They weren't leaving the shore to swim. They weren't collecting seaweed. They were picking up trash. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that their ability to be there was in violation of the property rights and that the line occurred, at least in the eyes of the court at that time, at, at a datum called uh, the mean high tide line. And, and scientifically that, um, and they referenced a, a, a former U.S. Supreme Court case called Los Angeles versus Borax Consolidated. And, and this mean high tide line had a fairly scientific definition. Um, it, the way that you found it was you would look at the tidal, you know, the tidal heights, the heights of high tide, high tides for a period of 18 and a half or so years. And you'd average that out to the average of those high tides. And then you would project that elevation onto the beach. Um, this, you know, in the land of surveyors, uh, was something that they felt was scientifically accurate. It could always be found. Um, but of course, in, in the land of practicality, <laughs> you know, it's really difficult for me, uh, as an angler to, to do that math. You know, obviously I don't have surveying equipment when I'm on the beach. <laughs> and so as a result, um, you know, everybody since 1982, since that court case, has effectively been unable to find the boundary on the beach. We, we simply don't know where it, it is. I, I don't, property owners don't, uh, police that are called to enforce trespassing don't. Um, and, uh, and, and so this has put that constitutional right really into blurry terms, you know, not knowing where I can do a con, you know, where I can go fishing. Um, and, and for that matter, always being at the mercy of a policeman that's willing to arrest me and having to prove in court that I didn't know where it was, therefore I couldn't be trespassing, uh, is simply not the type of security that that constitutional right warrants, especially no, given mean, that, its that, that uncertainty is kind of tough for everyone involved, you know? Well, and, and that's, you know, that's one of the frustrating things. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the, the, the more current events and the push in the legislature right now is that. You know, on the opposite side of this issue, a lot of the property owners, uh, I, I shouldn't say a lot, but enough of them have banded together and, and they've hired lawyers um, to to work against this issue. And, and it's it's been puzzling because it strikes me that right now they can't actually enforce their boundaries because they're so blurry. And in having a more clear boundary, um, they might actually be able to start enforcing what they want to enforce and keeping people off of a portion of their property. Um, but, you know, I, I don't understand why they don't want it. It seems to me it would benefit them, but they don't. Well, I mean, I guess that's what happens when uh, you've got multi-million dollar beach access. You can uh, do what you want, more or less, or try well, to. And, and that that's probably a good place to transition to uh, to the current events in Rhode Island, because what you know I mentioned, this was something that, you know, really this court case was 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, and and largely, you know, aside from the lack of a clear boundary and sort of the ambiguity that comes with it, um, we haven't seen people getting arrested up and down the beach. It's just sort of that ever present threat of needing to defend yourself that we've been working against. Yeah. Um, in 2019, what happened, there actually was somebody that got arrested. This was a, a gentleman 
um, down in uh, Char- the Charlestown, South Kingstown area. And, uh, you know, he was out on the beach, uh, in fact, practicing what is a, 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 new, a named constitutional right. He was collecting seaweed to fertilize his garden with. Um, and he happens to wander in front of uh, a property owner's house who had hired, and they'd actually hired a security guard to sit on their beach and tell people to, you know, to, to get out of here, that it was private property. Um, and he didn't want to get out of there. He felt like he was practicing his constitutional right and, uh, and ultimately was arrested. Um, what happened from there is, you know, he hired a, an attorney to defend himself and he did that successfully. They said they ended up settling out of court, um, in a, in a number of days he was released. Um, so there was no court case and there was no opportunity to undo this problematic lawsuit, uh, that had happened four years earlier. Yeah. But what that did do was it, it brought a lot of attention to the issue. And, and some of that attention came from lawmakers who were interested in, uh, in better defining, better clarifying what, uh, what the public's rights to use the shore were and, and where they could be practiced. So let's talk um, about then what, what those, you know, lawmakers, you know, see as, you know, the potential new metric or the remedy moving forward. Yeah, so that it's a that's a complicated question, and it's one, uh, frankly, that when um, when lawmakers started to engage on this issue, the what the legislature felt was that it needed uh, it needed real study, and so rather than uh, trying to hash it all out in committee hearings, um, our House of Representatives was the most interested in this, and and our House Speaker convened a study commission to look at the issue. Um, what that looked like was, uh, about a dozen, uh, representatives from all different parts, uh, of the issue. Um, so some reps from the legislature that were interested were part of that, uh, study commission. There were also lawyers, uh, versed in land use, coastal regulators from our agencies, uh, academics. So some representatives from the universities, uh, a former Supreme Court judge, um, and then folks that represented property rights from the from the Realtors Association. And um, at looking back on it, I think the House Speaker did a nice job of bringing people that brought all of the different perspectives that are, you know, that sort of, you know, they, they hold a stake in, in this important issue. He brought them all together and they spent about nine months, you know, debating the issues, um, studying the history. So they brought in a lot of experts. Um, they uh, they brought in some surveyors and, and people from our Coastal Institute that actually went out and mapped where this mean high tide line uh, existed in, in, in the real world in Rhode Island. Yeah. Um, and from that, they ultimately issued a series of recommendations. Um, and you asked about the terms. So what they, what they found, and it's important to note that, you know, at the end, most of the people on this, on this commission recognized two things. Um, one of them was that there was a need to correct that court case, that there really was a problem. Um, and that includes some of the people that came into the commission very skeptical about the need to, you know, to override the court because, you know, the courts generally do a pretty good job of, of staying fair on issues like this, you know, recognizing that there are both private property rights and, and public trust rights that are at stake here and balancing them. Um, so they acknowledged the need for a change. Um, and then they, they advised or they, um, they set out to recommend uh, a line that you know, that best balanced both sides of the issue and basically gave us as much uh, historical access as as we could sort of legally justify, given Rhode Island's history and our our customs of uses and the court cases that had been, you know, had deliberated the issue in the past. 
So um, Mike, what just, they, just out of curiosity, sorry to, I know you're kind of on a, a roll there, but what was there or is there a lot of overlap with that, you know, traditional mean high watermark and like physical, real, correct, accurate property lines? Or is there kind of some no man's land that property owners are trying to um, absorb or? So the, um, the way the way that I understand it is that the property boundaries that exist on features that move and th- those are things like the coast, but also potentially um, rivers inland that are subject to erosion and sort of cha- tend to change over time. When, when you have a property boundary that is tied to a feature like that, that there's basically there's no way to to stake it down in the ground. You can't mark it um, like you would. Uh, and, in, you know, I. I own property and, you know, the corner of my property is like the fire hydrant and that runs, you know, in a easterly direction to the tree and then it runs back to the rock and then it goes back out to the street and then back to the fire hydrant. Right. Yeah. And, and those, and those points in space are, are really never going to move. I mean, there's no natural forces that are pushing on them. Um, but let's say I were to own property on the coast uh, that I bought 50 years ago. Right. And we kind of all, I think at this point have come to the consensus that, um, not only is the sea level rising, um, but there's, you know, there are forces like coastal erosion that that are going to impact the boundary of that property. Sure. Um, and in, you know, in a really long time scale, there might be entire lots of property that no longer exist because they're underwater. Um, so that the boundary of coastal property is always going to be subject to some amount of movement. And that makes it unique compared to uh, property boundaries that are inland that really can be you know, determined as, as static points for very long periods of time. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a great explanation. And I think, you know, helps our listeners really, you know, understand how dynamic and complex this issue is. Yeah, you know, and, and there there are, you know, there's a spectrum there as well, right? Because some of Rhode Island's coast is, is pretty rocky. And, and that stuff actually is, you know, relative, you know, it's relatively steep. So the boundary doesn't move profoundly over time. Um, and the sea could rise, you know, six feet and it would be about in the same place because it's a rock. Yeah. Um, but there's also large parts of Rhode Island shore that are sandy and, and those are subject, you know, if you look at, uh, Napa Tree Point, which, uh, is all the way to the western side of Westerly, basically on the Connecticut border. Um, if you look at that in some historical photographs, uh, you know, there's land that s- simply didn't exist 50 years ago. I mean, there's other land that existed 50 years ago that really doesn't. That's a feature that shows exactly how dynamic uh, that coast can be, um, especially when it's left to its own devices, as opposed to, you know, built up with seawalls and hard structures that, you know, that provide little uh, a little permanence or protection. And, uh, you know, d- debating the merits of fortifying the shore is an entirely different conversation. <laughs> but uh, generally, those sandy shores can be pretty dynamic. Gotcha. So, you know, we're at the legislature now. They're they're talking about some new um metrics and terms to uh better define this this public boundary. Um what is the path forward that you're working on right now? So, the what the study commission recommended was a boundary that was tied to the seaweed line or the most recent throw of uh of seaweed on the beach. You know, the most recent disruption from the waves. Um, this, this was some, you know, I think that no matter where the line is drawn, it's, it's going to be hampered by some amount of variability. And the study commission acknowledged that, 
But looking at Rhode Island's history, this, you know, this it's been called the high watermark in some other court cases. Um, And what this would do is is ensure two things. One of them is that there's always some amount of shore that's available to walk on, um, which is important. Um, And number two, it would give something on the beach that, you know, for example, if you were uh, a a police officer that was called to assist with a trespassing dispute, there would be some feature that you could, you know, photograph or take and put in a, a, you know, in a record um, that showed where things were. And, you know, ultimately, no matter where the boundary is, it's going to be subject to some interpretation by the judiciary down the road. But um, but having something that's identifiable and that that high watermark or that seaweed line, most recent seaweed line was what uh, what what the study commission convened on and, and ultimately gained consensus on. So the the vast majority, I think all but one uh, of the study commission members um, supported their recommendation, which actually was the seaweed line and then a buffer 10 feet inland of it that would provide a small amount of area to walk. Even at the very highest tide, you'd have a little bit, you know, 10 foot width. Uh, of dry sand to walk on. Mm-hmm. And so did that, did that take hold? So what has happened, uh, so this, since the study commission uh, concluded its activities, which was in about April of 2022, so last year, um, following the study commission's recommendation, uh, a couple of our representatives uh, put a bill in that essentially made the recommendation uh, into a legislative proposal that the current that the House of Representatives could take up, um, and last year the House of Representatives very quickly passed that bill out of a you know a, a pretty well attended committee hearing, um, and sent it to the House floor, and they passed it unanimously on the House floor. So the House has been, uh, and remember, this was a House Legislative Study Commission, so they had had the opportunity to sort of watch the Study Commission work and learn about the issue, and and they were very enthusiastic, and particularly. Uh, a representative out of Portsmouth uh, named Terry Kortrevend, uh and our House Speaker Joe Shikarchi have both sort of you know brought this up this issue up as a recurring one. Terry is the lead bill sponsor, um, and uh, Speaker Shikarchi is uh, is as the speaker is the one that really flow uh, controls the flow of legislation through the body. Um, last year, the way that Rhode Island's legislative session works is we generally pass our state's budget somewhere in the middle to end of June. Um, and by the time the House had passed this bill in May, it, it was simply too close to the end of the session for the Senate to really give it the attention. Doesn't that sound, it, it doesn't sound anything like uh, the federal process either. <laughs> Sarcasm. <laughs> well, so, People can't see. So what, en- what ended up happening uh, last year was actually one of the one of the lawyers, a land use attorney that was on the study commission, um, ended up running for a Senate seat. And he he actually ended up winning that Senate seat. And so upon entering the legislature at the beginning of this year, um, even though the House Study Commission really operated in one chamber, a member of that House Study Commission made it into the Senate body. And so he's been able to carry the carry the initiative over to that side. Um, but right now, you know, the Senate really is where the battle is on this. The House in 2023, about two weeks ago, actually passed the the shoreline access bill again this year. So they've put their stamp on it and they're enthusiastic about it, which is something that we appreciate and we celebrated very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had the opportunity to watch the vote in person and go down on the floor afterwards and thank both Representative Kortrevend and the Speaker for their continued commitment to shoreline access in Rhode Island, which is, which is really great. There you go. Um, 
But in the next couple of weeks, we are going to have hearings in the Senate on this bill, which is going to be the first time that it's heard in that chamber. And so uh, obviously I will be there speaking for BHA and a lot of people are going to be uh, in the room speaking for their respective organizations in support of the initiative. Um, and ultimately what it's going to take uh, to get something done, and really this goes to all legislation, is people showing up. And, and we know, you know, thinking back to Amendment 7 and how anglers showed up for that initiative. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tried and tested formula and it works when we all get together and work for something. So what we are, what we're hoping is, is to get as many folks interested in that Senate committee hearing, whether they can show up or just send mail, you know, send letters in, um, and make sure that, uh, that that chamber hears how important this is to Rhode Islanders and to anglers in particular, um, and, and takes it seriously when they get the opportunity to vote on it and move it forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, you brought up amendment seven, the one, uh, the one kind of thing I'll push back on to you is unlike, um, ASMFC, Stripe Bass Board members, um, they are not elected. But when you're talking about elected officials, all they care about is getting reelected. So when you're really showing strong public support for something, that carries a lot more weight um, and is certainly, you know, you guys have public support on your side with this issue, no doubt. Yeah, I I agree. And that's, you know, I think it's always tough working, you know, ASMFC isn't exactly in the administrative or agency world, but they're kind of in that, uh, to your point, degree separated out from election, you know, they don't necessarily need to sing for their supper every two years or four years, like some of the elected folks do. So I, I think um, that, you know, we were able to move the needle at ASMFC. And I think if we can show that type of support here, you know, the needle moves even further into the red line to get this thing done. Yep, exactly. So hearings in a couple weeks. Um, and then after hearing, just does it go to a general Senate vote and then potentially to, you know, your governor's desk? Like what, what, what's the timeline you guys are looking at and, you know, maybe lead into, you know, where, um, you know, some of our listeners who are from Rhode Island or who fish in Rhode Island who can, you know, help help move the needle. How can how can they get involved? So the way that the legislature works in Rhode Island uh, is typically when bills are introduced, they're going to be sent to a committee and they're going to have a hearing in that committee. But th that doesn't necessarily guarantee that they get voted upon. Mm -hmm. So what what we are expecting here is to have a hearing towards the end of the month of April. Um, in the Senate. And, and that, that is not going to be a voting opportunity. That's going to be a hearing so people can come in and, and express support and opposition to the bill, yep. um, give their perspective on why shoreline access is important. But ultimately, that bill will remain an active proposal following that hearing. And it's every bit as valuable to send letters in after the hearing and, and urge support for the bill, as well as to push senators to bring it up for it for a vote. Um, so that the hearing is, it, you know, it's a deadline, so to speak, when it comes to, you know, to speaking in that public forum setting, but it's not at all a deadline in terms of engaging with elected representatives and senators. Um, ultimately what's going to happen there is there are a couple differences between the Senate bill and the house bill right now. And so beyond just getting it through the Senate, um, there's going to need to be uh, sort of a negotiation of sorts between the two chambers. Gotcha. And so what we're expecting is for that to really take, you know, could be the totality of the legislative session in Rhode Island. And so at any point from now until we've got a law passed, 
Um, and we're hopeful that we will, but it's not guaranteed that we'll even see a vote on any of this. It's always going to be valuable for people to weigh in and contact their representatives and government uh, and urge support for this. Um, I'll give a couple ways that that can be done. The, the easiest by far is over on BHA's website, we will have action alerts up um, that will help you to find if you don't know who your senator and representative in the Rhode Island State House are, if you're a resident here. Um, it'll locate those people based on your, your home address. Um, it'll generate a letter that expresses your support and send it both to them as well as the committee that holds control of the bill. Um, in addition to that, obviously showing up at hearings and on BHA's website, we'll post about that stuff as it comes up. We don't have the exact details on the Senate hearing. We and typically don't know until the Friday in advance. Um, so we'll really only have a couple days notice. But um, but showing up to hearings is always good. And then um, beyond action alerts, if you do know who your representatives are, sending them a personal note or giving them a call and, and actually talking to them in person or leaving a voicemail that's your voice um, and sharing your personal perspective and why this is important to you as an angler or whatever reason you go to the shore for um, is something that can be really powerful. A lot of times in state government, we're talking about districts that only have, you know, Maybe a couple thousand people are voting these uh, these folks into office, on a, and on any particular bill, they only might hear from three or four of them. Yeah. So the ability for one or two people to have an impact on the way a vote goes, or whether a vote even happens, um, can can be really profound. So it's it's important not to sit it out. No, for sure. And and you know when whenever this podcast podcast goes live, you know we'll be sure to. Um, you know, link those uh, action items on the the link tree or the, in the description. Um, but but you know, also we'll uh, we'll be sure to we'll be sure to share all of those action items and uh, recommendations on um, to to our listeners. Um, well, Mike, we've been going for uh, thirty five minutes now. Um, I think we've covered a lot. You know, given given uh, our listeners a lot of perspective on the Rhode Island shoreline access, um, issue, any, anything you feel like you missed that you want to hammer home right now or any parting thoughts? No, I, I mean, I, I think we, I think we covered this issue. Well, um, the, the one parting thought that I would leave here, and this is one that really, uh, applies to all of the different policy issues that both BHA and the saltwater guides association are working on is that um, it, it's vitally important now and will continue to be for people to engage on these issues when you're a stakeholder in them. So whether it's the fishery that you love or the place that you love to go to fish for them or hunt for them or whatever you like doing, um, it, it is very important to be part of that, uh, the decision-making process that guides this stuff. So um, I know ASGA is on the forefront of making so much of this avail information available to people. Um, and I would, uh, I would just urge folks to, you know, when there's an issue that you can influence to, to be part of that conversation and, and to make a different difference for the resources that we all care about. Yeah, totally. And I'll, I'll just add to that by saying, you know, if, you know, one thing doesn't go your way, you know, you got, you just got to keep pushing, um, keep, keep fighting for the resource for, you know, your, your public access for whatever it is, because, um, all this stuff can't be taken for granted. You know, we got to keep it for future generations, uh, for all to enjoy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Will. Yep. Thanks for joining, Mike. Um, and thanks for everyone for listening. We will be sure to uh, share um, these action items and other recommendations. But uh, wish everyone a good rest of their day. 